The world is on the verge of a massive debt crisis with unsustainable debt levels and defaults and delinquencies on debt at the highest level since the 2008 financial crash. This huge debt crisis is something that is not only affecting rich countries in the West, like the United States and numerous European countries, but in particular, many countries in the global South are facing serious debt crises. And this is really the product of a perfect storm with inflation and rising interest rates, with supply chain shocks coming out of the pandemic, with Western sanctions, with the geopolitical conflicts and the new Cold War that the United States is waging against China and Russia. All of these factors have come together in a disastrous, toxic mix that could lead to very serious economic problems in the near future. This video that I'm doing here is actually going to be in two parts because I don't want to make it super long, like an hour. Instead, I'm going to focus in the first part on the major debt crises in the United States with very rapidly rising defaults and delinquencies on credit card debt, on auto loans, and the massive crisis in the U.S. commercial real estate market, which could potentially threaten the stability of the U.S. financial system itself. And in the second part of this video, I'm going to be looking at a report that was done by economists warning about the debt crises in the global south and the parallels that these debt crises have to the debt crises of the 1980s, which were linked to many neo-colonial policies and the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And it has a lot to do with geopolitics as well. But again, that is going to be in a second video. In the first part here, I'm going to be looking at the situation in the United States. One of the most concerning signs of an impending debt crisis in the United States is that the number of North Americans who are falling behind on paying their credit card debt and auto loans is at the highest level since the aftermath of the 2008 financial crash. The Washington Post warned about this in a report titled Delinquencies Rise for Credit Cards and Auto Loans and It Could Get Worse. It notes that more Americans are falling behind in their car loans and credit card payments than at any time in more than a decade. And more and more people are deciding whether to pay their credit card bills or their rent or to buy groceries. So having to choose between your house and your food. And furthermore, the article notes that there are signs that the hardship for millions of consumers will get worse before it improves. The average credit card interest rate, which is already at a record high of 20.6%, is going to continue to keep climbing. I want to repeat that that, that is a shockingly high number. Nearly 21% is the average credit card interest rate in the United States. That is exorbitant. That's the, that's, those are loan shark rates. And furthermore, Student loan payments that were previously paused for more than three years due to the pandemic are going to resume in October. So this is really a perfect storm for a debt crisis. Now, a big reason for this is because the U.S. Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, has been 
aggressively raising interest rates, ostensibly in order to bring down consumer price inflation. Although in reality, the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, admitted that the goal is to drop wages, to bring down wages. So to smash the power of labor, so capital can discipline labor because workers are always blamed for inflation, despite the fact that the consumer price index inflation we've seen in the past few years were, was mostly due to the supply shocks, the shocks of the supply chain due to the pandemic and the lockdowns. Furthermore, the war in Ukraine and the Western sanctions on Russia. And Russia is, of course, one of the world's leading producers of oil and gas and wheat and fertilizer. So commodity prices rose a lot because, because of the war, because of the supply chain shocks and, and the lockdowns. And as commodity prices go up, especially as the price of oil goes up, that tends to lead to an increase in consumer price inflation especially considering that you need oil to transport the goods that you're buying at the store. So if the price of oil goes up, naturally the price of those goods tends to go up as well. So blaming labor, of course, is what the Fed always does to try to justify attacking labor and dropping their wages. But this article in the Washington Post points out that the pain in the U.S. economy with more and more people unable to pay their debt. This pain is an indication to Fed policymakers that their push to tame inflation is working. So they consider this to be a good thing. <laughs> they consider it good that more and more North Americans are unable to pay off their debt. The Washington Post points out that there are now actually 70 million more credit card accounts open than there were in 2019. And Americans' total credit card debt has topped $1 trillion for the first time, along with the roughly $2 trillion in student loans. Furthermore, shoppers are now turning to buy now, pay later services to cover necessities such as groceries, because the price of food has been Dry, rising. So instead, they're taking debt to pay for food. Usage of this kind of debt to pay for food has surged by 40% just in the first two months of 2023. And the Washington Post actually points out, there's a funny little note here. They note that uh, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and the interim CEO of the Washington Post Patty Stonecipher sits on Amazon's board, and she was also the founding CEO of the Gates Foundation. So it's, you know, it's it's all an old boys club, and you know, you're not a member. But this points out that Americans are continuing to trim discretionary spending. And in fact, there has been a decrease in the spending at physical, you know, mortar and brick stores, but there actually has been an increase in spending online, largely at Amazon. And that's why they pointed out that, you know, the Washington Post is owned by this billionaire oligarch. But the point is that this article notes that credit card delinquencies will continue to rise in the second half of 2023 on top of rising interest rates and student loan repayments, higher energy and electricity bills will also add to consumers' debt loads. And then finally, I haven't even talked about auto loan payments. This article notes that 
delinquencies on auto loan payments, which have already hit rates last seen during the financial crisis of the late 2000s, are also likely to keep climbing. During the financial crisis, that is in 2008, 5% of the auto loans were subprime borrowers, whereas now it is 6%. So we're seeing figures that in some cases are at the same level or even worse than the financial crisis of 2008. The investment research firm Game of Trades produced a graph that is really shocking. It shows the default rate on credit card loans that are owed to banks that are small banks, not the biggest banks. And many of these smaller and regional banks are the ones that are really being hit hard by the rise of interest rates. And you can see that actually the rate on the default rate on these credit cards is at the highest level since 1991, higher than the dot-com bubble of 1999-2000, high, uh, higher than the 2008 financial crisis, higher even than the pandemic. Game of Trades produced another graph using Federal Reserve data that shows that the net worth of households in the United States is contracting for the fourth time since 1990, and the previous times when U.S. household net worth decreased in the past three decades was in 2000 and 2001 during the, the dot-com bubble bursting and the recession of those years. And then, of course, during the great financial crash of 2008-2009. And right now, once again, it, US, the net worth of U.S. households is decreasing. And Game of Trades points out that this is at a time when credit card debt is $1 trillion, the highest levels ever, and credit card interest rates have soared above 20%. They wrote, consumers do not look to be in good shape. And that's putting it mildly. I mean, this could very well be a major debt crisis. And actually, I haven't even looked at the worst part of the impending debt crisis in the United States, which is the real estate sector, in particular, the commercial real estate sector, which is pretty much in free fall right now. This is a key part of the United States economy. And what we've seen is a massive decline in the value of real estate. Morgan Stanley has warned that commercial real estate prices in the U.S. could decline by 40%, which would rival the declines in the 2008 financial crisis. And this could have major shockwaves across the rest of the U.S. economy because in many urban areas, they're built, the local economy is built around commercial real estate. If you have an office building, then you have a lot of people working in the office and they frequently go for lunch or dinner, they go to the local restaurants or to the bars and they provide business to those local industries. And then of course, the city government and the state government get tax revenues from those buildings, the commercial real estate, from the local businesses. So if you have a collapse in, in commercial real estate, if you have many of these office buildings closing down, then you're also going to see a lot of economic activity in that area dry up. And what we're going to see is really the hollowing out of many of these urban areas. And that also means a drying out of tax revenues. So then you have local city, state governments that don't have as much in tax revenue, so they face budget deficits. So what we're seeing is 
a cascade of crises that are all interrelated. And it's even worse when you look at the banking sector, which is very heavily exposed to real estate loans. The Wall Street Journal just published a report this September warning of a real estate doom loop, which it notes threatens America's banks. It notes that the commercial real estate market is in meltdown in the United States, and there are trillions of dollars in loans and investments held by banks and other firms that are a looming threat for the industry and potentially the broader economy. This is the danger of setting off a doom loop scenario where losses on the loans held by the banks trigger the banks to to cut off their lending, which then leads to further drops in property prices and even more losses. The Wall Street Journal has a graph showing just how heavily exposed the U.S. banking sector is to commercial real estate. Since 2015, their exposure has increased by $1.5 trillion. And the graph points out that much of this debt, these mortgages, are held by regional and local banks in the United States. And it notes that banks in the U.S. roughly doubled their lending to landlords from 2015 until 2022 to $2.2 trillion. And once again, small and medium-sized banks originated many of those loans. Now, this is especially concerning because in the United States in 2023, in the first few months of this year, there were three of the four largest bank collapses in history. I repeat, out of the, the four largest bank collapses in U.S. history, three of those collapses have been just this year, in the first few months of 2023. And those were relatively small regional banks like Silicon Valley Bank, like Signature Bank, like First Republic Bank. And now we see that there is this larger looming crisis of exposure to commercial real estate where the market is in free fall right now. And again, Morgan Stanley said it could fall by as much as 40% in value. Now, one of the main reasons that those banks collapsed was because the U.S. Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, has been aggressively raising interest rates. And this has meant that many banks are essentially insolvent in the United States and in other countries where the value of their securities, the assets they hold, has dropped significantly with the rising interest rates. And they actually owe more in liabilities than they hold in assets. The U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, that's the U.S. government body that was created during the Great Depression in order to insure banks in the United States, insure the deposits that people hold at banks. The FDIC released data showing that since 2022, when the Fed began aggressively raising interest rates, the securities held by these banks have significantly fallen in value. We're talking about by hundreds of billions of dollars per quarter. So when there was a run on the bank, like for instance, Silicon Valley Bank, when people who held their deposits at the bank tried to withdraw their money, the bank had to give them that money. But a lot of that money was tied up in, it was invested in these securities. And because they had fallen so much in value, 
the bank, Silicon Valley Bank and others, First Republic, they had to sell those securities at a loss. They ended up losing a lot of money and eventually they went under. They had no more securities that they could sell to pay the people who held deposits in these banks. And of course, the US government bailed them out, including the uninsured deposits of wealthy depositors of billionaires and big corporations, which I explained in a separate video, which I'll link to in the description below. But what we're also seeing here with the crisis in the commercial real estate market in the United States is yet another major problem for the banking sector, which really could undermine the stability of the entire financial system in the United States. That is not an exaggeration, considering how heavily exposed so many banks are to real estate loans. In fact, the graph in the Wall Street Journal article showing the $1.5 trillion increase in U.S. banks' exposure to commercial real estate loans, that, that those figures actually in some ways downplay just how much of a problem this is. Because as the article points out, that many banks increase, increase their exposure to commercial real estate in ways that are not usually counted in their tallies. So for instance, banks lent money to financial companies that made loans to some of the very same landlords, and then they bought bonds, debt, back by the same types of properties. So in some ways, we see very risky behavior that's not dissimilar to the reckless and, and frankly criminal behavior that banks were engaged in that led to the 2008 financial crash. Now, this is different, but it does show that there are there are these investments that are built upon more debt and more debt and more debt. And there's often not enough interrogation asking if this is actually safe, if this money can actually be paid back, or if it can be paid back, is the underlying asset, that is the real estate, going to be worth the same in the future? Because of course, this big bubble, this real estate bubble, was ultimately based on the premise that interest rates by set by the Federal Reserve would always remain low forever. And that clearly is not the case. So the Wall Street Journal points out that this form of indirect lending, along with foreclosed properties, trading portfolios, and other assets linked to commercial properties, brings banks' total exposure to commercial real estate to $3.6 trillion. That is equivalent to about 20% of their deposits. So one-fifth of the value of the deposits held by these banks is tied up in loans and investments made involving real estate. And now what we see is the value of that real estate is significantly declining because as the U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates ostensibly to try to bring down consumer price inflation in the United States, really to actually try to bring down wages and decrease the power of labor. But as the Fed has done this, it has also significantly dropped down the value of not only securities, you know, government bonds, but also real estate, because it's pretty easy to explain. As interest rates go up, it becomes more expensive to borrow money. And if you look at sectors like real estate, 
the vast majority, at least of average people, they don't have enough cash to buy a house, especially considering how expensive houses are, right? You don't have $500,000 in your bank account unless you're rich. So in most people, most average working people, and even people who make more money than them, they usually go through a bank, they get a mortgage, they borrow money to pay for that house, or at least they pay a down payment and then the bank pays the rest of it. And as collateral, the bank says that if they if the person borrowing the mortgage can't pay back the mortgage, the bank uses the house as collateral, the real estate. And this is also true for a company that is investing in commercial real estate. So now that it's more expensive to lend, there are few people, fewer people willing to take out those loans from the banks, those mortgages. So there's less demand for the real estate. And as there's less demand, the prices drop. Because if it's very cheap to borrow money, if you can get a mortgage from a bank with a one or 2% interest rate, then a lot of people would say, fine, I'm gonna go buy a house because I can actually afford the house. Instead of paying you know, all this money in rent every month, I could pay that to pay, I could, instead of paying rent, that money could go to paying off a mortgage and eventually the house will be mine, although it belongs to the bank in the short and medium term until the mortgage is paid off, right? So what is happening now is that fewer people are taking mortgages out because it's more expensive to take a mortgage. Interest rates are higher. And what that also means is that with less demand, people who are selling their houses don't have as much bargaining power to ask for higher prices. So the value of these houses on the market is dropping. And many of the banks that are holding these mortgages, these holding these re real estate loans, now are also dealing with the collateral, that is the real estate, the house or the office that the loan is backed by, also decreasing in value. So if a company can no longer pay the mortgage on the commercial real estate and they tell the bank, sorry, I can't pay this off, well, the bank is left with the collateral with this real estate that in some cases is actually now worth less than it was before when the purchaser took out the mortgage. And if the bank tries to sell that real estate, it's gonna be sold at a loss. And by the way, I should point out that there's another way in which the chronically low interest rates also contributed to this massive real estate bubble that is being burst now with the, the significant decline in real estate value. And that is because interest rates were so low for so long that many investors, many people who had a lot extra money sitting around, they invested that money in real estate because interest rates were so low, they wouldn't invest that money in government securities in treasury bonds or treasury bills or many other investments where there was low return. It was assumed that real estate was a great investment because not only do you get a return on it because you have this bubble that is being inflated by U.S. government policy. And over time, the idea is that if you buy a house, the house is going to keep increasing in value. So not only do you get a physical, tangible asset, but you get a return on that investment in scare quotes over time. So a lot of people were not even buying houses to live in. They were buying houses as a form of speculation, as a form of investment. And this was part of this big asset price inflation bubble being pumped up 
through U.S. government policy, through Federal Reserve Central Bank policy. And since 2022, we now see that bubble has been bursting with the significant rise in interest rates by the Fed. So when a huge part of the banking sector is built precisely on real estate, representing 20% of the value of their deposits, and you face this crisis like we see now, it really can fundamentally impact the stability of the entire financial system. Now, one reason for the crisis in commercial real estate in the United States is the growing popularity of work from home, although this is actually exaggerated and it's not really the main factor. Now, this is what you will see some people talk about, but I think it's actually missing the forest for the trees. And this is, of course, because during the pandemic, more and more people were working from home. And even after the pandemic, a lot of people, at least if they have a job where they can do so, they're working from home still. They're not going to an office every day. And this has also financially incentivized companies to cut costs because it's very expensive to pay for an office in a the center of a city like New York or San Francisco or Chicago or something. So many of these companies have cut costs. They've instead gotten smaller offices. And now that means that there is much more real estate, commercial real estate in urban areas that is empty. And as there is a larger supply of more and more real estate, prices tend to go down because there's not as much demand. So that is certainly a factor along with the fact that accompanies, accompanies it, which is that during the pandemic, a lot of people moved from urban areas to suburban or even rural areas because you can get a much bigger house with a yard for less than you can get a, you know, a small apartment for in an urban area. So these are all factors that have contributed to the commercial real estate crisis in the United States, which is really threatening the stability of the U.S. financial system. But it's not the main factor. It's easy to get lost with that. But in reality, this most significant factor is the rising interest rates by the Federal Reserve. So what I think this really shows is that friend of the show, economist Michael Hudson, is absolutely right when he said that the U.S. economy has, has put itself in a situation, in this dilemma, where it can only survive with low interest rates. So that means that it's going to have to either accept high rates of consumer price inflation with low interest rates or th this collapse that we're seeing now, these major crises that we're seeing now. Because after the 2008 financial crash, the U.S. Federal Reserve dropped interest rates basically to zero. And in fact, the real interest rates were negative because, you know, you had interest rates based on, on paper close to zero, but then you actually had a slight bit of inflation, which is higher than the actual interest rate. So those are negative real interest rates. So what this meant is you had so much liquidity sloshing around, so much money basically being given out for free to the financial sector. And then you also had the policy of quantitative easing through which the U.S. Federal Reserve basically printed money and then bought up securities, not only U.S. government bonds, but also invested in securities like, for instance, mortgage-backed securities, helping these banks by buying, in some cases, these toxic assets that no one wanted to invest in because they were pretty much worthless. So you had this 
massive artificial bubble buildup of not consumer price inflation, but what the U.S. government was actually doing was fueling a big bubble of asset price inflation, pumping up the value of stocks and bonds, pumping up the S&P 500, pumping up real estate. And this meant that rich people who hold investments got richer and richer, while working people got poorer. And in addition to benefiting the banking sector, these policies helped enrich the rich in the country. They made the rich even richer because the top 1%, the wealthiest 1% of North Americans hold 54% of stocks. And the wealthiest 10% of North Americans hold nearly 90% of stocks, whereas the poorest half of people in the United States only hold 0.6% of stocks. I repeat, the poorer half of, of the U.S. population holds 0.6% of the stocks. The investment website, The Motley Fool, put together a very useful graph, an interactive graph, showing just how unequal stock ownership is in the United States. The bottom 50%, the poorer half of North Americans, own I mean, just basically nothing on this graph. You can see a fraction of 1%. Whereas if you look at the top 1%, c consistently more than half of stocks are owned by just the wealthiest 1%. And then if you also look at the 90 to 99 percentile, we're talking about over 35%. So when you combine the top 1%, which as of the first quarter of 2023 owned 53.6% of stocks, with the 90 to 99% range, which as of the first quarter of 2023 owned 23.4%. Together, that's 89%, nearly 90% of stock owned by just 10% of North Americans. And by the way, when you factor in racism as well, you can see similar figures. White Americans own 89% of stocks. And, and of course, we know in the lead up to the 2008 financial crash that many banks engaged in explicitly racist policies targeting black Americans and Latino Americans with unfair loans on very unfavorable conditions. And the banks knew that these families would be unable to pay off these mortgages. And yet they used those mortgages to create mortgage-backed securities and then sold those mortgage-backed securities in tranches of other assets. And they built this huge financial house of cards that collapsed in the 2008 financial crash. So those were some of the warning signs that I wanted to look at today and analyze because we do see a lot of reporting claiming that the U.S. economy is in such great shape. You know, unemployment figures are technically low, although I think... The way unemployment is calculated is not a very useful metric because a lot of people are underemployed. A lot of college educated people who have useful skills are, you know, they're Uber drivers. They're delivering food or whatever on an app and they have multiple part-time jobs or gigified jobs and this precarious work despite the fact that they're underemployed, they are not considered in the unemployment statistics, which, by the way, also don't include people who gave up looking for a job. So, I mean, we see so many indicators claiming that the economy is doing so well, but I think more important indicators 
are whether or not average working people can buy groceries, can pay their rent. And with the historic levels of credit card debt default, auto loan default, and this real estate crisis, I think we can see very clearly that the economy is not doing as well as we were being led to believe. Now, on that note, I'm going to end this first part, and I'm going to do another video very shortly in which I look at the situation in the global south, which is significantly worse, the debt crisis that we're, that is largely caused by these very same financial policies of the United States. The U.S. Federal Reserve in particular with its aggressive hiking of interest rates. But furthermore, there are definitely geopolitical elements here. The new Cold War policies taken by the United States against China and Russia, the proxy war in Ukraine, the sanctions on Russia, and many other factors. I'm going to be looking at that in part two. I'm going to conclude here. I want to thank everyone for joining me today. Please subscribe on whatever platform you are watching or listening on. I'm Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report, and I'll see you in part two.